back to the podcast. I'm the host, Sean Boyce. I'd like to welcome my guest to the show today, Melissa Kwan, who is the co-founder and CEO of eWebinar. Hello, Melissa. How are you? And thanks for being on the show. I'm good. Thanks for having me, Sean. Yeah, very excited to dive more into your background. But before we do that, uh, and ask you a ton of great questions about the great experience that you have, I'd love if you wouldn't mind for our audience to learn a little bit more about you. Would you mind sharing more about your background and maybe how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so um, three times bootstrapper, had two companies in real estate tech uh, that lasted about 10 years. Um, eWebinar is my third company, and we solve a problem that I lived with in the past in my previous company, which is doing the same webinar over and over again. So eWebinar automates webinars. We turn any video into an interactive webinar that you can set on a recurring schedule. So companies use us to run hundreds of webinars every single month without actually being in front of a camera to do it live. So think about things like demos, training, onboarding, things that you are doing repetitively or wish you could, but don't have the mind share or the people to do it. Love how straightforward, basically what how you describe your webinar is. I work with a lot of early stage teams and getting to that part. I know I'm sure it wasn't easier, happened quickly for really anybody, but um, very short, sweet to the point and raises a bunch of great questions. So I'd love to dive in there and talk about all the experience you have from bootstrapping. And we talked about maybe talking about managing pricing, um, but also eWebinar. And first thing I'll ask is you had mentioned the problem that eWebinar solves. That's one that I have myself as well too. So as I was diving in your background and checking out the product, I'm more than likely going to give it a shot myself as well, because <laughs> that's a problem that I have. So that strikes the chord for sure. And uh, the first thing I want to ask you about though, is you mentioned it solves a problem that you have and or had. That's something that I've seen consistently and I've leveraged myself for the products that I've built and that's helped a lot. Can you talk a little bit about how important it is to solve your own problem or like what role that plays in the companies that you've been able to build successfully? I mean, I think ideally you build a product that, you know, that solves a problem you know intimately well. Um, but I don't think that's required, right? I think... Sometimes, uh, like in my previous two startups, you just need to build something that you know, um, that you have expertise in, and that makes you money. <laughs> so um, previous to my two startups, I was in real estate and, and on the business side for a long time. So I had contacts in the industry. I knew the industry. I knew some problems that were there. And even though it wasn't something I was truly connected to and, and wasn't my passion, um, I did what I had to do to build a company and and make money. And that was the stage of my life that I was in. And through building those companies, because we were bootstrapped, I was the person that had to run all the sales webinars, trading webinars to make sure that you know people sign up and that people use our product so they would keep paying us a subscription. And I was the only non-product person that was on my team because we always had a really lean team as we do now. So I ended up living the problem of doing, you know, repetitive trainings and onboardings and always wondered why there wasn't an incredible product that solved that, that problem. There were products that were out there, but they just weren't built to the extent that I had imagined. And I think being able to build a company that solves a problem that I know so well and one that I feel really connected to because, you know, freedom's always been my number number one priority. And that was a problem that was restricting me from living my life because I was also also digital nomading. So I, I had to, 
you know, do these on opposite time zones, you know, leave dinner early because I had to come back to the hotel or Airbnb to do the next demo that I had done yesterday. So not only was this a problem, like business problem that I live with, it was also in infringing on the way I was enjoying my life. So building this product was not just a business decision. It was something that I felt close to my heart because I wanted to free other people like me from their business so they could live their life. And I want to say that this is an earned privilege because I had, you know, two companies before this, my previous company was acquired that gave me the time, the financial freedom, and also the confidence to do something that I really believed in. But I'm not you know, a believer that you can only start a business because, you know, you believe in that problem. Sometimes you just have to do what you have to do at that point in time. Very well said. And that's actually where I was going to go next. So that's perfect. It was really a question about, so you had this problem, right? You knew it intimately well, but the thing that you mentioned, which I think is also really important to understand is that if you're just building something for yourself, but it doesn't have wider implications or can be turned into a successful business that sounds more like a hobby than proper business so what if anything like what did your process look like what do you recommend people do once they find a problem like that and they probably have the inclination like you did where it's like i can solve this i can make this better that would give me a bunch of value you've already articulated a few of the ways how did you evaluate like what does the size and scale or potential for something like this look like if i were to turn something into a, a business and before you went and like super deep into deciding to build it into a business? I mean, there's a few things, right? I think um, looking at the financials to evaluate a business idea or product is one way. It's, it's I think, where a lot of people start and it's where I started in my previous two startups, but I don't recommend it, right? I think when you build a company, it becomes so much of your life and you're spending so much time on it that you have to start with what makes you happy first. And that's what I didn't do in my previous two startups. I was like, oh, this is an idea. It makes money. Let's do this. But for 10 years, I was always discontented and frustrated because I didn't start from a place of love, I guess, right? Like, And love for myself. So coming to eWebinar, I didn't choose eWebinar as a business, right? I really sat down and I wrote 10 non-negotiables that I had to have in my next business. So things that made me happy. So for example, um, I have to have a completely remote remote team of contractors because I know I don't, I'm not really great at managing people, hiring and firing and, and having those tough conversations. Um, I wanted a product that could be sold 100% through the internet. I was so sick of going to conferences and sitting at booths and doing face-to-face -face meetings. I didn't want to do that anymore. So I wrote a list of 10 things that I needed in my business that makes me happy. And through that, I actually eliminated about 95% of ideas that I had. So that was really step one. And the second part is like, how do you know a business has legs, right? The best way to know if a business has legs is that there are other existing businesses out there. So this is the, the argument, I guess, the debate between like blue ocean and red ocean, right? And my previous two businesses were, were pretty blue ocean. You know, they were in real estate. Um, they didn't, they didn't really exist. And not everybody has the time and money and luxury to do a blue ocean idea. I think it is a misconception that more customers means better. But when you're in a blue ocean opportunity and people are not used to spending money to buy the product that you are putting out there, it's a very long education cycle 
to help them understand why they have to carve out budget to buy something they've never bought before. So a great, like, you know, a great example of a, you know, of a red ocean opportunity is a CRM, right? And maybe that's like, you know, too saturated now, but it's much easier to convince someone to buy a new and better CRM than to go from a paper Rolodex, which they're used to and it works okay, to a software they've never seen before. So we didn't put something out there that didn't exist. I just thought there was an opportunity to make something that existed 10 times better. So I knew that there were other businesses out there that were making money. And that was the best indication for me that we could make something 10 times better and either convince those existing customers to do, you know, something newer and better, or um, to convince someone that, you know, we have a better product. So because I had two blue ocean opportunities in the past, it was particularly important for me to do something that already exists. And I think that's the best you know, way to vet an idea. And and if you think about those things, like Alibaba, for example, was like the eBay of China, right? They didn't need to show, you know, the world that eBay was successful. eBay was already successful, right? Like Word, for example, was not the first Word software. So it's kind of along the same line. So I think first is like, make sure it's something that makes you happy that you want to work on. And especially if you're a bootstrap company, don't go and try and, and start a blue ocean opportunity unless you know exactly what you're up against, right? Find something that you know you can improve and make that your business. And you can probably cut down on at least, you know, two or three years of, of trying to get something new out there on the market. Great advice. And I've learned a lot of those lessons myself the hard way, I would say also, in that not all of these opportunities are created equal. So, but I like the idea of starting with the end in mind in terms of what type of company you want to build, what type of experience you want, how does that integrate with your life? Because I've done the same where I've just been chasing these things and maybe one day they'll turn into unicorns, but the lifestyle that I afforded to me wasn't really what I wanted to do. And that affected my work as well. Also, um, plus timing results, all that kind of stuff, it's all related. So if you kind of start with that end goal in mind, it helps you get a better understanding uh, and really where to focus, which I think isn't something you shared, which is like, once I realized what I wanted to do now, based on what I had done previously and how that's supposed to change, it eliminated a bunch of things that I could have worked on and enabled me to focus on what I did, what made the most sense based on that. And then from there, I also love the idea of um, focusing on an area where there's products already on the market because there's so much to be learned from existing products with traction. They all have gaps, right? And they can all be closed in different ways. I think um, a lot of the folks that I speak with, early stage founders and whatnot, they they put a lot of stock into the category of like whatever I'm doing needs to be the first ever kind of thing. And then when they find something that's similar to whatever it is they want to do, they panic, freak out. Some of them quit, uh, which I think is the wrong approach. I think what you're articulating speaks to where I've been able to have success as well too. Is like you know, the competition in many ways can be a good thing because it's validation that there already is a market, right? So. I think one of the things you're speaking to is the difference between selling, which is like matching a solution to a problem to solve it in a better way versus educating, which is a lot more expensive and time consuming than most people realize. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people realize how difficult it is and, and to, you know, to convince someone to do something new and how unimaginative the general consumer is, right? Mm -hmm. So even though we have a product now that 
is 10 times better than you know previous things that were on the market. If you are trying to convince a new group of people to use this product who's never used it before, it's still a challenge for us, right? Like, so the, the products before us had traction in a group that we don't really go after, right? So um, solopreneurs, you know, uh, individual contractors, uh, individual consultants, right? Like, like marketing, like people that are more focused in marketing, we really go after small, medium-sized companies um, using this for customer success, marketing, lead gen. So anything that's bigger than a one-person shop, right? Which is, it's, it's a new group of people that we're trying to convince that typically has only used Zoom in the past. They've only used live webinars. And now we're telling them, hey, automated webinars exist. And actually, even we underestimated how difficult it is even though a, a product already exists, it doesn't have wide adoption like CRM. So there's still an education cycle. It's a bit easier, but you know, it's it's not, you know, it doesn't come without its challenges. Right. And I think people have like when people say, Oh, I'm doing this thing, no one's doing it. Like I actually see that as a red flag. Cause my first question is, why isn't anyone doing it? And that's actually a question you should ask yourself. When you come up with a new idea and you think, hey, this is awesome. No one's doing it. The second question you should ask is like, why not? Right. And actually go and find someone who's who's tried to do it and ask them for the reasons why it, it didn't work out. Well said. Absolutely. Great advice. Uh, and that answer will probably provide some great insight into why that is like it is because been there too. I'd love to pick your brain too about the bootstrapping versus taking investment. I'm sure you've had opportunities and have seen others who've done something similar, but you've bootstrapped successfully now, not once, but three times. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about why that strategy makes the most sense for you and how it compares to basically whatever type of situation you may have found yourself in if you were fundraising instead. Yeah. So my first company was bootstrapped because I didn't know that raising money existed. So this was, you know, 13 years ago, like all the tech stars and Y combinators came after that, like shortly after that. But it, like, you know, I'm from Vancouver, so it wasn't a big tech community, right? Like back then it was just meetups. And then I guess along the way, I learned that, you know, people raise money and, and build companies on other people's money, which actually see, seemed pretty cool at the time, but I didn't really understand that concept. It wasn't until I moved to New York for my second company, uh, which was, a you know, my first true SaaS company that I realized people raise money to build these unicorn style companies. And, you know, I had, you know, some pretty tough times building my second company. And, you know, I pulled out loans, took revenue from my previous company, start my second company. And for a few years in that second company, it, it was super tough financially to make to make ends meet. You know, I had to take side projects here and there, you know, just to to pay, you know, to make payroll the 15th and 30th. Um, and I also did try to raise capital, but we just didn't have a venture scalable idea, right? Like it was okay. It made money, but it wasn't like VC backable, but I still tried to raise money. I had many conversations with VCs because I just couldn't make ends meet. Um, I never missed payroll, but was close a few times. Um, but along the way, when I tried to raise money, we had to build the business. So in parallel, we became break even and then profitable. So then I didn't have to raise money anymore. So I kind of saw both sides of the coin. Like I saw that like my VC backed peers were becoming more and more stressed out because they needed to raise future rounds. 
uh, because they had spent all this money into hiring people and not, you know, not being able to break even. Whereas, you know, more and more, I was becoming less stressed out and more stress-free because I, you know, was becoming, you know, a sustainable business. Like I was able to call my own shots because I didn't overspend. And so I saw both sides of the coin and saw that the life I was leading was better fitted, I guess, to what I wanted, which was number one, complete freedom. And number two, not having someone else tell me what to do with my business. And I came to realize that while most people think that bootstrapping is a financial choice, like they think that we don't want to give away equity and we want to keep everything. But through my experience, I learned that bootstrapping is actually a lifestyle choice. And I just can't imagine myself spending all my time, my blood, sweat, and tears building a business and have someone else on my board tell me what I can and can't do. Maybe I can't, you know, maybe I can't live on the road and maybe I have to have a business or, or an office, you know, in San Francisco or, or New York, wherever it might be. Or if I wanted to sell the business and I wasn't selling it for high enough so that, you know, I had to keep going, right? A large part of why we were able to sell our company for the price that we did in 2019, after five years of running it, is because we own 95% of the business. And I didn't want to run it anymore. And, you know, someone else gave us a good price and it was an opportunity for me to move on, right? I can't even imagine having someone not spend a day in my business and having wrote a check some years ago tell me I couldn't sell the business. And at that point, if that had happened, I would have either had to resign as CEO and maybe lose some equity and not have that exit or keep running it and miss out on the opportunity cost of starting something new and exciting, which I actually wanted to do, right? So that's, you know, that's my experience of like why I think it's better for me. But ultimately, I don't believe that there's a better way to run a business, right? A business is a business, but maybe there's a better way for you, depending on how you want to live, right? Some people really thrive on, you know, gunning for the unicorn and wanting to IPO and have an idea that is really world changing, like an Uber or an Airbnb that they cannot run without that kind of capital. But I would say that very few founders have that ambition and understand the sacrifices that is required to get there. And I know I don't have that ambition. And that's why bootstrapping is, is better for me advice and the perspective between the two is, is so interesting. I think you do a good job of helping people understand that there's a lot more behind this decision than what kind of meets the eye or what people might expect. The other thing I've noticed too is the things that I've heard you say, which are like fundamental economics, building a profitable business, right? Eventually being able to control your own destiny in that way. Oftentimes, depending upon which decision you make there to raise or to bootstrap, it kind of sets up which path you may be on for an extended period of time, maybe indefinitely. A lot of those unicorn companies, they're not so much so focusing on the economics a whole lot. It's like growth for growth's sake, which is a very different model, <clears throat> excuse me, than if you're actually able to make your own business profitable, now control your own destiny, create it whatever it is you'd like it to be. So in the end, when you wind up with that much more control, create a vision, all of that, you get to decide what you do with your own company. I think a lot of people might want to find themselves in that scenario versus what it might be had they taken investment. The other piece I think that's not as well understood also 
you know, there's a lot of risk involved with regardless of the track that you take. But if you look at the sheer numbers of the people vying for something like unicorn status, and then ultimately who's able to achieve what level of success taking that approach, I often see improved numbers by taking a leaner, more bootstrapped type approach, at least to get past or beyond a certain point. Like I, I refer to it as like creating a small fire first, as opposed to like coming with just sticks and stones or whatever, and then trying to raise money around something like that just gives you a better position. I feel like to like um, negotiate from a position of power to a certain extent where you don't have to like give up everything just to get the next check. Yeah. I mean, I, I think another misconception that people have with bootstrappers is they don't raise any capital, right? Like there's, there's always some capital that's involved, right? Like my co-founder and I wrote the first check, you know, we didn't pay ourselves for a while and I haven't paid myself since we started, right? That's kind of sweat equity. Um, and we have some friends and family funding to get us started off, you know, in the beginning. And, and I think a lot of bootstrap companies have that as well. Some people raise from, you know, smaller family funds that don't demand, you know, venture style returns, but there's, there are actually also a lot of bootstrap companies that end up raising money from institutions much later when they get to call the shots, when they have product market fit, right? Like, um, you know, a friend of mine, uh, Lloyd Lobo, Ray didn't do their first raise until after 10 million in revenue, right? And and there are companies that do that, and but they do it for different reasons, right? Also, when you're when you're at 10 million ARR and and bootstrapped, you've probably spent 10 plus years running this, and there are multiple reasons why founders would want to raise money at that point, and I think that one of the top reasons is they want to take money off the table. Right? They haven't paid themselves well. They kept investing all these years. And they're kind of tired of doing it on a dime. And they also want to live well like their peers. They want to buy their first home and you know, they want to enjoy the fruits of their labor. You know, they want they they don't want to sell 100 percent of their company yet, but maybe they want to sell majority to a private uh, equity fund or a growth fund and keep being involved in some way. Right. So I think it's just a different structure, but I do know a lot of bootstrappers that raise money later on are able to do it on their own terms when they want it and only when they have a great financial partner because they already have a sustainable business at that point in time. Very different approach and excellent points as well. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit too about what growth at eWebinar has looked like thus far. Like what have the stages or phases of growth look like and maybe some of the things you've had to do differently yourself as a team in order to get to and through those next levels of growth? Yeah. So growth has been slow and steady. <laughs> I mean, um, I am a believer that, you know, hockey stick growth is a myth, um, only happens in unicorn land. If you look at a lot of companies with hockey stick growth, um, you will also see that a lot of them has bought their growth, right? So it's not growth in profitability. It could be growth in revenue. And those two are very different things, right? Revenue does not subtract your burn. Um, so slow and steady growth for us, what does that look like? Um, we hit a million ARR in 36 months after product launch. It took us about a year and a half to get the product from the first line of code to getting it out to the market and you know the first trial converting. So um, it, you know, it 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 seems like a long time because the media only reports on companies that got to a million in six months, right? Or got to a million in a year. It could be you. It probably isn't. 
And the reason why that's important to know is because it helps you plan how much money you need in the bank and how much you're able to spend for 36 to 48 months after your product is on the market. Just because you get a product to market does not mean people are going to start paying you, especially in this day and age where consumers are more discerning than ever before. It requires so much more for them to put in their credit card and then keep it there for you to build a sustainable business. And it probably in the first year, year and a half, um, because we didn't have a lot of revenue, we would grow, I think, like 10 to 20% every month, depending on the month. Um, and then we would grow like, you know, five to 10% for a bit. And then we would grow, you know, three to 7% for a bit month over month. Um, we haven't had a negative month yet. We've had break-even months, um, but that's what it's been, right? Just slow and steady. Um, we don't consider ourselves having true, you know, product market fit as you know people would understand it it's still really difficult and the thing that keeps us up at night to get people into the trial get people converting um you know getting our name out there um but that's why you know there's i'm having this conversation with you you know podcasting is one you know one strategy of ours but also lots of content seo lots of writing on social you know, lots of integrations, collaborations, getting into conferences, you know, do, like putting thought leadership out, content out there. I can't say that we know exactly what we're doing. We don't measure things very well. Uh, but in this day and age, like attribution, attribution is extremely difficult, right? Like someone might hear about this podcast, tell their friend about eWebinar um, or about my LinkedIn profile months down the road, they come to our website, they eventually sign up. All, the, all those th things are really hard to measure. But we do everything we can to build credibility, build trust, and get our name out there. Um, and we don't know exactly the thing that's you know working and and not working, but we keep doing those things because we want to build a sustainable business. We are just at profitability. Like when I say just that, we're like plus or minus a couple thousand, um, depending on you know what we have to spend. Um, but you know, the three people, the three most important person, people in our business don't get market rate salary. All right. So that's probably one of the big reasons why we're able to, to keep going. But, um, my next financial goal for the rest of the year is to make sure that myself, my co-founder and our COO, who's started helping us from day one, get market rate salary by 2024. And great advice as well, too, especially on the front that is slow and steady growth. I'm one that's a huge advocate for slow and steady growth and that there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. One of the reasons being is that if you are having wild swings in, in the upside, let's say, to me, if you go up that fast, you can also come down that fast. So I don't want like big, massive changes happening in short succession. I think short and steady growth is a way to really achieve success. And congrats, obviously, on uh, reaching profitability. That's very exciting for Bootstrap Business. Super excited to continue to hear more, obviously. And there was, um, you had posted something. Um, for those that aren't aware, Melissa's got a fantastic social media presence as well, too. So I'd highly encourage you to check out her LinkedIn profile and the content that she shares besides all the other podcasts that she's been on. But you had posted something recently, which also talked about product pricing, which I would love to ask you about as well, too, because that's something that I know people have a lot of questions about. How do I manage product pricing? Where do I start? 
how do I make changes once I figure out what some of those numbers look like? Uh, for some of the products I built and launched this year, I started pricing where uh, I knew some competitive products kind of were at, where I thought I was going to be able to basically offer something like with a profitable gross margin or whatever. But from there, I've continued to learn more. Now, you know, I'm in a position with some of my products where I'm going to make adjustments myself. So I talk a lot about that. Love to hear your thoughts and philosophy there and perhaps how you've managed that at eWebinar. I mean, pricing is so hard, right? Like right. Um, I shared a, a post that actually accidentally went viral, but having said that, all of our posts are pretty accidental, but on five pricing mistakes that we made. And the thing about pricing is you don't know it's a mistake until months later. And, you know, the hardest thing, the second hardest thing about pricing is to unwind those mistakes because it's not like, oh, I can just change it. There's customer communication, there's emotions involved, right? There's needing the revenue and not wanting to churn. There's also dev work involved in, in changing pricing. It's not like snap of a finger. Um, but I think like to your point, you have to start somewhere and that has to be consistent with where your competitors are, right? But you should never be the cheapest unless that's what you're going for. And in the beginning, you can't be most expensive because you don't have all the integrations and all the features and, and all those things, right? You might have a product with a 10 times feature that makes people convert, but you're not, you know, you, you don't have equal footing with the competitors that are out there. You can't call yourself the best, right? So I guess that's what we did, right? In the beginning, we, we knew the customers we wanted to serve. We knew where we were better, but we also knew where we were worse, so we picked a price, uh, price point, we picked a, a business model that we knew we could justify at that point in time. What was really interesting was, so give you context, we started at our lowest plan, we started at 49. So it was like 49, 99, 199. About a year and a half into it, and mind you, we're only like three years in, so halfway into it, we started getting a lot of, you know, kind of bottom of the barrel users, right? People that signed up because we were cheap, but weren't tech savvy and needed a lot of support, a lot of handholding. And we were like, it was sinking us, right? Because we were doing all the support. We still don't have a dedicated support person. So everybody on our team, when they're available, hops into support, including myself, and my co-founder. So we were getting a lot of those users that said, hey, we're signing up for you because you're the cheapest, but not because you're the best. But we started this to be the best, not the cheapest. So we actually made a decision um, a few months after that to double our prices, which made us you know, on the upper echelon of where our competitors were, but, but definitely not the cheapest, but still not the most expensive for two reasons. One, because we knew we were better now. Like what, like we, we still had the same pricing from day zero. Whereas at that point we had over 20 integrations. We could call ourselves the best in the market. We just didn't have the best marketing, but we had the best product. So if somebody came through, we could say, well, you can use something cheaper, but you're giving up on all these things. And the second reason was we needed a way to get better customers we didn't want everybody signing up. We wanted the best customers to sign up, the people who were tech savvy, the people who wanted to invest time, and the people who weren't so price sensitive, right? Because the people who signed up because we were the cheapest, they were also the most price sensitive because they didn't have a business of their own to support the software that they were investing in. And then for the first two weeks that they were here, 
they were just sinking off all our time. So we weren't able to spend it on people who, you know, we wanted to support. And actually what was really interesting was when we doubled our prices, a lot of those customers went away and our conversion rate went down, but our net revenue or net profit also went up because now the now people were taking a bit longer time to invest because now the bottom tier is a hundred bucks a month, but they had a business of their own that could actually sustain that investment. It was no longer cost. It was an investment. So I think your pricing model just has to evolve with your product, especially in the early days. So at, and, and don't be afraid to raise your prices when you're offering more, right? Because people understand that. Like there's also inflation, right? Every, everything else is costing more. And the most important person that needs to get paid is you and your team. So you need to make sure that this business keeps sustaining and that you hit profitability so you can continue to provide a service and a product that is as good as it is for your customers. If you don't exist, you can't service them. And actually, one of the bigger mistakes that I made when we changed our pricing, when we increased our pricing, is we grandfathered pricing for our legacy customers. Which, by the way, a lot of Bootstrap founders who's been in my shoes before told me not to do. But I wanted to do, quote unquote, the right thing for the customers that invested in us early. And I was scared to have customers turn. But a lot of founders that had been through this before told me some will turn, but because the revenue goes up and most people appreciate your product so much that they're not even going to notice it. In fact, some of your most loyal customers, because it's only like, 50 to 100 bucks and 100 bucks to 200. Like these people have real businesses, right? Like, so your most loyal customers want to pay you more. So your net revenue is going to go up. But I didn't have the confidence to do that. And that was a big mistake because we already raised our prices and we fixed the legacy prices. And we couldn't do two price raises in like in a matter of months, right? So what I didn't realize was the bigger the business got, the more investment was required. Like our database was costing more money. Our Vimeo was costing more money. We needed to hire one or two, two more people as more people were coming in. So I didn't actually account for that cost when we raised the prices. So we are going to have to do that in the next few months. But if we did that, we would have made an extra 30000 even Taking into consideration consideration churn, we would have had an extra thirty thousand to invest in infrastructure and new people and our salaries. But because we didn't do that, because we wanted to quote unquote do the right thing, we ended up doing the wrong thing for our team. And I think the people who would have churned because prices went up by fifty or hundred bucks would have churned anyway because they didn't justify that investment in in their business. So these are just some of the mistakes that that we made and and hopefully someone's listening to this conversation can not do what what I did. Great lessons learned and I really appreciate you sharing that advice cuz it's very hard to get that information especially from someone who's been through it successfully like you have. So I really appreciate you sharing that and I've been through several myself as well too and it's just you know that that decision making process especially 
when you're going through it can be tricky to figure that out. So having that experience helps tremendously. Next question was going to be for aspiring founders, other people that want to live similar life or lifestyle, do this successfully, learn from you, people that have done it successfully, or maybe even advice you would give your younger self or earlier when you were starting out. What's what do you think is would be the best, like most impactful advice for somebody to help learn from those who've been able to do it successfully like you have? Well, I think um I mean, I'm an advocate for life design. Um, and the most important thing you can do for yourself is is to make that decision to make that a priority. Right. It's it's because life design is not a zero or one endeavor, right? It's it's like a process of incremental improvement. You don't have to have everything you want from day one, but if you never start, you're you're never going to get there. And that's why I think having a list of non-negotiables is that important because that's your goal, right? Like, and and maybe today you can have you know two out of your ten non-negotiables, but. If you never know what they are, you never know what you're going to say yes to and what you're going to say no to. And once you have those non-negotiables, when a new decision comes or, you know, even when it comes to how you design your business or hiring people or company culture and, and things like that, like you have to know what to say no and yes to. And the only way to do that is to know like, what is that ultimate goal that I'm trying to get to? Right. So I think if you want to live with complete freedom then know what that looks like for you so you can start making decisions that take you closer. Just doing what you do every day and just going with the flow is not going to get you there one day, right? You have to, know, you have, to have, I think, a base standard for, for what that looks like. I dig it. Life by design makes a ton of sense. Uh, and thank you so much for being here and sharing your experience. Uh, that knowledge is super helpful for people going through this process and want to learn from those who have had the success, learn these lessons, helps them achieve success as well too. Uh, before we let you go though, a couple of questions for you is number one, where can people go to learn more about the products you're building like eWebinar? Uh, who should reach out to you and how can they get in touch? Yeah. So um, the best way to get in touch with me is connecting with me through LinkedIn where I share um, daily or a few times weekly on my experience bootstrapping three companies um, and if you want to know how eWebinar can help you or your business, just go to eWebinar.com, exactly as it sounds, eWebinar.com. There is a demo that is managed by myself as well. Um, and the people who should go to that is, um, you know, if you're running a business where you're constantly doing sales demos, onboarding, trading webinars, um, and you wish you didn't have to do them repetitively, or if you wish you could do more, but you don't have the, the mind share of the people to do it. Um, we can probably help you with that. So um, check out ewebinar.com. Thank you so much, Melissa. I appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Product Launch. I hope you got value out of it. I like to feature product people on my podcast because that's who I love to help. I'm a product strategist and I can help you scale your business and grow your profit through a product. If you'd like to learn more about how I can help you, email me at sean at nextstep.io at Sean, S-E-A-N, at nextstep, N-X-T-S-T-E-P.io, or visit my website at nextstep.io. That's N-X-T-S-T-E-P.io.
Hey folks, Sean here, and thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you got a ton of value out of it. If you did, I'd encourage you to also sign up for my free five-day email course about launching a profitable B2B SaaS application for less than $750. If you'd like to sign up for that course, you can do so at nextstep.io forward slash B2B SaaS.